Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's almost difficult to imagine the world 15 years ago and how normal it all felt. This morning I was talking about Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen and how much I used to love all of their movies growing up. I was like, oh, I wonder what they're up to, Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen. And I just had this weird feeling of like nostalgia like I miss the time growing up in the 90s when life was so simple that it was like popping in a Mary Kate and Olsen film and Full House and uh, the values there was no like trans kid on Full's House everything was normal on TV it doesn't matter what you were watching whether it was um, the Huxtables around the table everything was just so normal uh, on TV and if you watched Nick at Night whether it was the Jeffersons there were good values that were being instilled on TV, and then you sort of fast forward to today, and you've got Sam Smith dressed as a devil in latex twerking on stage. You just go, why? Why? Why, Sam? Good morning. It is Friday, March the 31st, and this is The True Conservative. Welcome to all the butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers out there. I'm Ron, your host, and the only true conservative in the United States today. So today, after the daily, or excuse me, after the serenity prayer and the star-spangled banner, we will have no free lunch, the rape of the mind, emotional manipulation, George Lackoff, and Candace Owens. All that and more when I get back. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing and remove your hands for the national anthem of the United States of America.
Thank you, thank you. And now, there's no free lunch, 250 Economic Truths by David Bonson. Government-to-government foreign aid promotes statism, centralized planning, socialism, dependence, pauperization, inefficiency, and waste. It prolongs the poverty it is designed to cure. Voluntary private investment and private enterprise, on the other hand, promotes capitalism, production, independence, and self-reliance. Henry Hazlitt. Few subjects have generated more discussion and experimentation over the last 30 years than that of foreign aid, and few subjects have resulted in more lessons learned the hard way than foreign aid. From all-out corruption to enabling bad actors to the tragedy of a cycle of dependency, divorcing foreign aid from the engine of wealth creation, from the time-tested tools of productivity and entrepreneurship has been an abject disaster. And that was There's No Free Lunch by David Bonson. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, The Rape of the Mind by uh, Juiced Mirlo. The Need to Collapse. The vocabulary of psychopathology contains many sophisticated terms for the wish to succumb to mental pressure such as wish to regress, dependency need, mental masochism, unconscious death wish, and many others. For our purposes, however, it is enough to state that every individual has two opposing needs which operate simultaneously. The need to be independent, to be oneself, and the need not to be oneself, not to be anybody at all, not to resist mental pressure. The need to be inconspicuous, to disappear, and to be swallowed up by society is a common one. In its simplest form, we can see it all around us as a tendency to conform. Under ordinary circumstances, the need for anonymity is balanced by the need for individuality, and the mentally healthy person is one who can walk the fine line between them. But in the frightening, lonely situations in which the victims of menthicidal terror find themselves, situations which have a nightmare quality, which are crammed with dangers so tremendous they cannot be grasped or understood because there's nobody to explain or reassure, The wish to collapse, to let go, to not be there becomes almost irresistible. This experience was reported by many concentration camp victims. They had come into camp with one unanswered question burning in their minds. Why has all this happened to me? Their need for a sense of direction, for a feeling of purpose and meaning was unsatisfied. And hence, they could not maintain their personalities. They let themselves go in what psychopathology calls a depersonalization syndrome. A general feeling of having lost complete control of themselves and their own existence. What Pavlovian conditioning can do in applying artificial confusion can be done, too, by one shocking experience. For what, they asked themselves, what is the meaning of all this suffering? And gradually, they sank dully into a paralyzed state of semi-oblivion we call depression. The self-destructive needs take over. The Nazis were clever and unscrupulous in taking advantage of this need to collapse. The humiliation of concentration camp life, the repeated suggestion that the Allies were as good as beaten, these conspired to convince the inmates that there would be no end to this pointless suffering, no victorious conclusion to the war, no future to their lives. The desire to break down, to give in, becomes almost insurmountable when a man feels that this horrible, 
marginal existence is something permanent. That he cannot look toward a more personal goal. That he has to adjust to this dulling, degrading life forever. At the moment, faith and hope disappear, man breaks down. There are tragic stories of concentration camp victims who fixed all their expectations on the idea that liberation would come on Christmas 1944 and aimed their entire existence toward that day. When it passed and they were still incarcerated, many of them simply collapsed and died. This tendency to collapse also serves as a protective device against danger. The victim seems to think, if my torturer doesn't notice me, he will leave me alone. And yet, this very feeling of anonymity, the sense of losing one's personality, of being useless, unnoticed and unwanted, also results in depression and apathy. Man's need to be an individual can never be completely killed. And that was The Need to Collapse from the Rape of the Mind by Juiced Mirlo, M.D. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, Chapter 5 from the book 30 Covert Emotional Manipulation Tactics. 5. The most powerful motivator on the planet, intermittent reinforcement. There is nothing like the bliss and elation of new love, especially when you believe you've found the one. That takes it to another level. You may feel you never really knew what love was before and experience incredible joy and happiness. And then one day, something unexpected might happen. You'll get a queasy feeling that you can't shake. You'll sense deep in your gut that he or she is pulling away, but you won't know why. Your heart will sink and your stomach will clench with fear. In the process of a pathological relationship, the moment when the joy at finding love turns into the fear of losing it is called the manipulative shift. When that happens, the manipulator takes control. The person who idealized you now devalues you. A long and painful ride downhill begins. Fear takes away our ability to think clearly. It's an intensely powerful and uncomfortable emotion. And we want to feel safe again. In this case, fear is caused by the threat of losing who we believe is our loving and wonderful partner. When we feel fear, we will give just about anything to the person who can take that fear away. In this situation, that person is the very one who caused it in the first place. The manipulator. He or she can take our fear away by becoming attentive and loving again. And we try hard to regain that attention and love. The manipulator shows us how and keeps us hooked on them through the use of covert manipulation. If fear is something we want to avoid, how does a manipulator use it to keep us hooked? By alternating fear with another extremely powerful emotion, love. Creating fear of losing the relationship and then relieving it periodically with episodes of love and attention, employs a powerful tactic of manipulation known as intermittent reinforcement. Those positive episodes that banish our fear release a potent dose of feel-good hormones and neurotransmitters 
including dopamine, which induces euphoria. Have you ever gone to a casino and played a slot machine? You feed in quarters and pull the handle over and over and watch colorful images of fruit and numbers and bells whiz by. If you don't win anything, you start to fear that you might lose all the money you already put in, let alone not win the jackpot, so you are compelled to keep trying. What if you walk away from this machine now and the next person to sit down pulls the handle and wins? You insert a few more quarters, pull the handle, and amazingly, images of a red cherry line up, bells ring, and colorful lights flash. Quarters pour out from the machine and into your waiting hands. This reward causes your brain to light up, too, by releasing a burst of pleasure-inducing dopamine. And you want more. Your fear vanishes, and you have your money back. And now that you have all those shiny quarters, there's no reason not to keep playing. Who knows? Maybe you'll win the big jackpot. You start feeding the machine again. You alternate between the thrill and relief of winning small jackpots and the fear of losing it all. You're hooked. Psychology researchers have long considered intermittent reinforcement the most powerful motivator on the planet. It is also the most maliciously manipulative tactic. Intermittent reinforcement is simply unpredictable, random rewards in response to repeated behavior. But there is no more powerful formula to get someone to feel or act in a desired way. It can be elevated gradually to extreme levels, creating compliance that is obsessive and even self-destructive. You won't notice it for what it is when it's happening, unless you're aware of the tactic and how it works. In a manipulative relationship, the more infrequently the crumbs of love are offered, the more hooked you get. You become conditioned, like a rat in a laboratory cage. When rats are taught to press a lever that randomly dispenses a delicious morsel, they press the lever obsessively. After a while, they will keep pressing the lever, even if no more morsels come out, until they starve to death. I think this is an unconscionable experiment, by the way. Similarly, we may hold on to a partner and a relationship when there is no more love to be had. Lab rats are taught to press the lever by starting them out with continuous positive reinforcement. Think of it as treat bombing in place of love bombing. When the experiment begins, every time the rat presses the lever, she gets a morsel. Then the researchers change the game. The rat presses the lever, but a morsel isn't delivered with every press anymore, only on random presses. The rat is fearful that she won't get fed, but she knows pressing the lever brought food in the past, so she keeps pressing it until she gets some. As long as she gets a morsel every once in a while, she keeps pressing it. When the morsels stop coming, she's sure she'll get one next time she presses it, or the time after that so she never stops trying. It works the same way in a manipulative relationship. You are the rat, and the morsel you keep trying for is love. Intermittent reinforcement plays a big role in the phenomenon of traumatic bonding. A trauma bond is a very strong attachment to an abuser that develops not in spite of manipulation and abuse, but because of it. Powerful emotional attachments are seen to develop 
from two specific features of abusive relationships, power imbalances, and intermittent good-bad treatment. According to psychology researchers Donald G. Dutton and S. Painter, Emotional Attachments in Abusive Relationships, A Test of Traumatic Bonding Theory, Violence and Victims, Volume 8, 1993. Intermittent reinforcement begins insidiously. The stage of continual positive reinforcement, love bombing, ends. Perhaps a phone call or text message isn't returned or doesn't come at the usual time. A hand that always held ours as we walk down the street is kept in a pocket instead. We witness our partner flirting with someone else, although they deny it. For a week, they aren't in the mood to make love. They subtly or overtly criticize or demean us for our weight, our age, our ideas or opinions, or some quirk they once claimed to love. They compare us unfavorably to someone else. They give us the silent treatment. Little by little, it gets worse. Much worse. But there are always times you are given a few morsels of love. Your partner reverts back to being the loving and attentive person they used to be. All hope is not lost. You're unwittingly put on an emotional roller coaster, riding it to dizzying heights that alternate with death-defying drops. What can you do to prevent being victimized by intermittent reinforcement? It's hard to recognize if you know nothing about it, but now you're armed with knowledge. Here are some things to keep in mind for future relationships. Consider the trustworthiness of your partner on an ongoing basis. Once he or she gains your trust, it's very easy for them to get away with a lot of bad behavior. After all, you have a solid image of them as trustworthy. But trust shouldn't be given once and then last forever. A person's trustworthiness should be re-evaluated as needed. How can you tell if your partner is still deserving of your trust? Trust is based on three aspects. Predictability, dependability, and faith. Predictability is the consistency of your partner's behavior. And predictable behavior is in stark contrast to the unpredictability of intermittent, good, bad, or hot-cold treatment. Dependability is the degree to which you trust your partner to be honest and reliable. Faith represents your conviction that your partner will be responsive to your needs and can be counted on to behave in a kind and caring manner. Don't judge your partner's trustworthiness by how they were in the past. Consider the three elements of trust at the present time. Skilled manipulators are good at gaining our trust, but not so good at keeping it. They count on our image of them as trustworthy as a substitute for actually being trustworthy. Keep in mind the signs in yourself that you're being manipulated, which you learned previously in Chapter 2. How to tell if you're being manipulated. You will not feel like that in a healthy, normal relationship. Those signs are reliable indicators that intermittent reinforcement and other manipulative tactics are at play. Look for the hallmarks of a healthy relationship. Intimacy, commitment, consistency, balance, progression, shared values, love, care, trust, and respect. Listen to any alarm bells that go off in your head. 
and listen to friends and family members whom are known to have your best interest at heart. Don't ignore them, no matter how much you would like to. Become and stay conscious of the power balance of the relationship. The person who cares less has the power. Be aware that when you feel chronically insecure, heartsick, anxious, or hurt, you can get caught up in the drama of abuse and become blind to the larger dynamic at work. Is this a healthy relationship, one that you're thriving within or not? Ask yourself if your relationship is based on real emotional intimacy or if you're being tricked into accepting intensity as a substitute. Find out how to answer that question by reading the next chapter. And that was chapter five of the book, 30 Covert Emotional Manipulation Tactics by Adeline Birch. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now the uh, last part of Chapter 7 of Don't Think of an Elephant by George Lakoff, Ph.D. In capitalistic economic theory, employment is a transaction in which the employer buys the labor of the employees and the employees sell their labor to the employer, hence the term labor market. It is assumed in economic transactions that both will seek the best deal. Unions create the best deal for the resource employees. Unions function to equalize the power of the company over the employee. Short of outsourcing, companies cannot function without any resource workers at all. If the company is unionized, then all the workers as a group have bargaining power that a solitary worker does not have. The alternative, taking whatever the company offers to the individual, might well be called corporate servitude or wage slavery. As the power of unions has declined, the wages of resource workers have not gone up in 30 years. Over the same time, the wealth of wealthy investors and corporations has skyrocketed without more being produced. The decline of unions has meant a decline for most citizens in their share of their nation's wealth, and with it a decline in all the freedoms that wealth brings. Unionization is a freedom issue, and needs to be understood as such. But the failure to say it out loud and repeat it as often as possible allows conservatives to form organizations like the Center for Worker Freedom, as if unions were taking away freedom and to speak of right-to-work laws, as if unions were taking rights away instead of granting you freedom from corporate servitude and wage slavery. Immigration America is a country of immigrants. Many of them have been refugees, either refugees fleeing from brutal oppression or economic refugees fleeing from equally brutalizing poverty. They have come here for freedom. My own grandparents were such refugees, and if you are not Native American, your ancestors most likely were too. Upon arriving in America, my grandparents became Americans in the best sense of the word. Hardworking, raising their families, highly ethical, and loving and appreciating this country. I suspect that your ancestors were like that as well. 
The issue of immigration is about a new generation of such refugees. President Obama, in a speech on June 22, 2012, at the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed Officials Conference in Florida, clearly and beautifully stated his moral understanding of the issue. His words showed that the current wave of refugees, referred to as undocumented immigrants, are in many ways already citizens. They contribute enormously to American society and the American economy through hard work. They love the country they live in. They are patriots. They share their lives with other Americans every day. They take on individual and social responsibility. The president offered more than just freedom. He offered appreciation. They have earned not just recognition as Americans, but our gratitude as well for all that they have contributed through hard work, often at low pay. They are fine Americans already, and through the lives they have been living as Americans have earned the documentation that other Americans have gotten just by being born without earning it. This is a moral narrative that tells a truth and needs to be repeated, but it rarely is. There are two metaphors, one liberal and one conservative, that do not do the refugees justice. The liberal metaphor is the path to citizenship, as if citizenship should be the end of a long, hard journey, with little granted along the way, with long years in limbo and legal residency only to those who act as ideal citizens and either go to college or serve in the military. The DREAM Act, which would allow such access to the American dream, doesn't have the right name. It makes these de facto citizens into those who can only dream as if they are not acting every day just as citizens, the best of our citizens, act. At the very least, they are earning and deserve a minimum along the way. Health care, decent housing, decent working conditions, a living wage, and access to education for themselves and their children. And the right to a driver's license. They deserve not just freedom, but gratitude. The conservative metaphor shows anything but gratitude. It is the criminal metaphor. In fleeing to America, often risking their lives to come, these refugees trespassed. They did not have documents, which is not within the law. Conservatives have therefore branded them as criminals, illegals, as if they are committing crimes every day when they are actually mowing lawns, cleaning houses, taking care of children, picking vegetables and fruits cooking your meals, working on construction sites, and, whenever possible, using all the skills they have to their advantage and to ours. Their children are studying in schools and helping out at home. But because they often have brown skins, are impoverished, and speak Spanish, they are discriminated against. Conservatives want to jail them and deport them. Being brown-skinned, Spanish-speaking, and poor, and not being born American, they fall low on the conservative moral hierarchy. They are seen as less moral. They are discriminated against for their color and language and blamed for their poverty. The issue for Americans is empathy. Do we care for those fellow human beings who are functioning as our fellow citizens? Or do we treat them as lesser beings? not worthy of the freedom they are earning day by day. 
The issue for those who have come here to escape the brutality of oppression and poverty is freedom. This is especially true for the tens of thousands of children who have crossed the border, sent by parents or fleeing on their own from human traffickers, gangs, and death squads in Guatemala, Honduras, and parts of Mexico who are murdering, harming, or kidnapping children. Under an executive order signed by George W. Bush before he left office, these children have to be taken care of reasonably well by the U.S. government, processed, given a court hearing, and then either sent to live with family in the United States or deported to another country, Mexico, if they are from Mexico. It was never expected that there would be so many. Conservatives are blaming the situation on Obama for not just immediately deporting them, though it would be illegal as well as inhuman for him to do so. They are not called Bush's refugee children, though they could be if the issue were just pinning the problem on a conservative rather than treating them humanely, and according to law. Meanwhile, southern conservatives living near the border are rebelling against treating these refugees humanely and not just deporting them. There are massive conservative organized protests, people lining the roads, waving American flags, shouting racist slogans. Those interviewed in the media say things like, send them back, they're dirty, they carry diseases, they're criminals. Why is Obama spending our taxpayer dollars to give them clean rooms and clothes and food and medical care? Soon they'll be in our schools. Where are their parents? How could their parents have been so irresponsible to have sent their children here alone? Don't they love their children? This is a major humanitarian issue, and it calls for empathy. Parents who love their children don't want to see them maimed or murdered or kidnapped by human traffickers. Many of these children are heroic, somehow traveling over 1,000 miles to get to safety and freedom. The issue is empathy and respect for these refugees as human beings. And that was uh, the end of Chapter 7, Don't Think of an Elephant by George Lakoff, Ph.D. So a couple of things that I wanted to say is uh, that when the United States is properly understood as property, it belongs to the United States of America. That's why we have borders, to distinguish our property from the property of others, Canada and Mexico most notably. So when somebody comes here illegally, when they sneak across the border, they are... Uh, trespassing, they are breaking the law. And everything that they do after they enter here, after they sneak in, is fruit of the poisonous tree. So it is, it's all tainted. They go out and they get a job. They're out here, as, what is he saying? They're mowing lawns. They're stealing jobs from American citizens and legal immigrants. They're also putting downward pressure on wages and income. They're also putting increased pressure on housing. More these the more of these people that come in, they have to have a place to live. That puts the the, the price of housing then goes up because there's not enough uh, room uh, to house them, etc. So they're, they've committed a crime to get here. Their very presence is a crime. 
uh, because again, they're taking away work that would normally done be done by citizens and legal residents. Let's look at mowing lawns. That was a job that I used to do and that my friends used to do. It was one of the first jobs you used to get. Actually, one of the first jobs we got as kids was newspapers, delivering newspapers. We would have uh, some guy that would come along in a uh, pickup truck and he would have uh, X amount of, we'd have paper route. And so you would have a bicycle, you would have bags uh, that you would put papers in and they would bring the two. Actually, what he would do is he would put the papers on the porch early in the morning, like five o'clock in the morning, because we had, that's when we delivered them. And so we, the first job we had to do is we had a bag of rubber bands, we had the newspapers, and we had to fold the newspapers up. Uh, if there was inserts that we were supposed to put in, we put the inserts in, etc. Sunday newspapers were uh, a big deal because they were much bigger. They had comics and all kinds of inserts and stuff like that. But anyways, that was our first job. So you had a, And you had a collection book. So you would go around your route to all the people that were on your route and you would uh, collect. You had receipts. It was a book of receipts. So um, you would go and knock on the door. They would pay you and then you would give them a receipt. And then, of course, you paid the guy, the uh, whoever the organizer was. Okay, It's one of the first jobs that we had. Everybody in school did that. It was kind of a rite of passage. Now it's gone. And it's gone because the work is done by illegal alien adults. So uh, kids getting the opportunity to get a job and to learn responsibility, learn how to handle money, that kind of thing. One of, the, one of those opportunities is now gone. The same thing even if you look at one of the other rites of passage was mowing lawns. If you wanted to be a bit of an entrepreneur, what you would do is get your family lawnmower, usually a push mower, and you would go around uh, or you you might uh, not even take the mower with you. You just go around people's houses, knock on their door, and uh, tell them I'll mow your lawn for, say, $5 or $2 or whatever it was at the time. So, and then you would make some money, usually over the summer. You could do something like that. But now, kids can't do that anymore because that's a job that is now done by illegal immigrant adults. So, uh, Mr. Lakoff seems to be, uh, I don't know, maybe he's high. Maybe, maybe that's it. Or maybe he has... Some the, maybe the compassion we need to show and the empathy we need to show is for Dr. Lackoff because maybe he has some kind of mental emotional problems that prevent him from seeing the obvious because he seems to think that illegal immigration has no consequences. Now, the last thing on this is the big difference between illegal immigration today and illegal immigration when I was a kid is that when I was a kid, it was a few families here and there that would sneak across the border. Now they're coming by the hundreds of thousands and they're coming because they're forced to by the drug cartels. This is a way for the drug cartels to make money. It's no longer a thing where people just, uh, maybe people live in Tijuana that are decide, decided they're tired of uh, the poverty in Tijuana and want to come across the border for a better life. These are people now that are coming from all over Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and it is drug, these drug cartels 
that are going into these villages and telling people, you are going to go to the United States. Uh, They give them then a wristband and they keep everything nice and organized because the drug cartels charge them money. So when they're out here mowing a lawn, it's not to feed their family. It's not even to send the money back home. It's to pay the drug cartels. And apparently, Mr. Lakoff doesn't know this, or he doesn't have the empathy uh, or the humanity to care. Back in a minute. This is Ron, your host, the only true conservative in the United States today, bidding adios to all the butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers out there. So I'm reminding you that the left has no authority, no power, and they can't win. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.